HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Hacking Open Table? Pulling the open API? What does that mean? How do you do that? Find out today on Tech Bytes. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners. If you're tapping your foot to that awesome little techno tune, you want to go and check out a DJ named Uptown Nico on SoundCloud because he is the mastermind behind that. Jack Inslee, our engineer and the network's executive producer, is the superstar DJ who pulled it. It's always, always a great place to start. It makes people happy and they smile. They tap their feet in the studio. That is the theme song to Tech Bytes, the weekly program where we talk about the intersection of food and technology. I am Jennifer Leutze, your host, and today that technology is going to be actual the actual technology part. We have a couple of very smart, technologically astute gentlemen in the studio today. Reed Kavner, who created a website called ResHound. Hello. And back from episode three of Tech Bytes. We have Jason Davis, who is the mastermind behind Last Minute Eaten. Great to be here again. And it's worth noting that this is show 42. If I had really planned it out, I would have had you back on show 43. But almost a full year has been wow. gone by since you've been here. Show week. Right? <laughs> also in the studio, we have a surprise guest. We have Aaron Fairbanks, who is occasionally my co-conspirator for fun little projects like The B-Side, which if you haven't listened to that, I challenge you to go find it. She is also the station's executive director, and she hosts her own show called The Farm Report. Hey, Jen. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you after the holidays. You too. Yeah. Happy post-Thanksgiving. You're looking spelt as usual. Thank you. It's the winter white. <laughs> Well, not many people go to white when they're wanting to spell it, and you're really working it. And in the booth, we have Jack Inslee, aforementioned superstar DJ, engineer, producer, guy. So flattering every week. Thank you. 
Well, I'm just going down the business card. That's right. You know? That's all. That's all it is. I'm not making anything up or, or adding really any context at all. I'm just going down the list. And we also have Malachi, our studio intern. Hey, how's it going? Good. Did you have a nice holiday? I did. And you? I did as well, but I feel like holidays are different when you're not in school. True. Because it's not <laughs> as much of sort of a clean break with nothing to do. Mm-hmm. So that's our cast of characters today, and we are going to start off the show like every show, going around the room talking about apps, apps that we love, apps that we've just discovered, old favorites. And I think we'll start off this one with Aaron, because we never really get to see you, so this will be fun and new. Awesome. Um, Well, the newest app that I've been enjoying is called uh, WeChat. It's basically a app that's designed for facilitating group chats. Um, Me and my college girlfriends have been using the iPhones function for the last like year or so, and we decided to up our chat game. And so far as I can tell at this point, the primary benefit ha- is that they have really funny little emojis and emoticons. They have this whole series of things called uh, rabbits, which are rabbits doing different types of dancing to express joy or fear or uh, amazement or shock. And it adds a bit of whimsy <laughs> to the chat. <laughs> Mostly I have a super techie friend and she's like, this is what you should do now for chatting. So we just did it. So what's the difference between WeChat and WhatsApp? I have no idea. I've never used WhatsApp. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I... Well, I mean, WhatsApp doesn't have dancing bunny stickers. Well, but. I feel like that's one thing they're missing then. Okay. Because the dancing bunny fingers are a great, a great feature. I have noticed that WhatsApp doesn't actually have native support for Giphy's. I think it's a big shortcoming in the, in the offering. Although you had your eyebrows raised like you were really surprised to meet somebody who'd never heard of WhatsApp. Well, that's, that's a not, nice you, not never heard of, never used, mm. never used. I feel like as you know, person, I like to have people in my life who I cannot go to for advice and consulting where they have an expertise in an area. And then I'm just like, hey, you've done the research. You looked at all the things. What should I use? And Let the people do their jobs. Exactly. We love that. Jason, what's your app? Uh, well, I, I should say this with a disclaimer that I recently switched uh, as a longtime Android user to, to iPhone, so I'm still sort of... Welcome, Welcome to the dark side. Yeah, Congratulations. No, the, the battery life on Android was just unbearable. 11 a.m., I'd be dead. Uh, you know, that being said... I, I, th- this may be the first time I've ever heard someone say they went to iPhone for battery life. <laughs> it's, it, the, the Android situation is as grim. Uh, you know, the, the phone would be hot. You know, if battery would be dead, it's a bad day. Um, so trials and tribulations of switching systems and phones. You know, for me, you know, the platforms you know used to be a lot different, and now I think they've they're both they're both pretty pretty functional. And for me, I think you know there are a few. I think the camera on the iPhone is is is, is the best out there. Um, you know, the the, the touch sensor, or the fingerprint sensor is is convenient. Uh, but the big thing for me is this, is this battery life. Uh, I think most of it just comes to comes to the fact that Apple is an integrated device, so. They design the hardware and the operating system, and they're you know, very close gatekeepers over the apps for for both better and for worse. Uh, and with Android, you know, Google designs the operating system. You know, Motorola or LG or whoever designs the uh, the hardware, uh, and, the, and the coupling between the two I guess isn't the same as as, as Apple. So there are inefficiencies. So while that's a, a ringing endorsement for the iPhone, I, I didn't hear an app in there. I mean, I'm, I'm, aware, you know, as long as we're talking about chat apps, you know, we're, you know, I'm, I use WhatsApp fairly aggressively. Huh. Uh, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's sort of a throwback. I mean, I grew up, 
uh, you know, you know, sending instant messages over AOL you know, when I was 15, uh, you know, and now, uh, you know, 20 years later, you know, WhatsApp sort of came out of nowhere, you know, three, four years ago, insane adoption. Uh, and it's just incredibly simple and functional and fast and reliable. Um, I really started using WhatsApp primarily <laughs> when I started traveling abroad because it runs on Wi-Fi. Yep. So as long as you have free Wi-Fi, it's great. And especially it has the photo and the video component. So that really is my go-to, not on the day-to-day, but definitely on international travel. Right. It, it, right. No, I, no totally. And, 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 and from a sort of a, an engineer's perspective, I mean, you know, it's a pretty awesome story of just... You know, a few guys out of Yahoo came and put together a pretty small team and scaled this uh, this thing into a massive platform. Of course, and they had know. just had a huge valuation earlier. Yeah, this well, year. That, that was a little bit silly. Uh, I think it's sort of a, a mark of the times with you know how Mark Zuckerberg views the world and where Facebook is going and sort of where he sees competition coming from. And I think you know largely that was lucky, but at the same time, you know they grew into you know tens of millions, probably today maybe in you know you know approaching a hundred million users and. You know, they did that largely with a dozen engineers, which is is, is pretty incredible. But no dancing bunny. They stickers. don't. They don't have Giphy support. Imagine what their valuation would be with the dancing bunnies. I can't imagine. Read. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've been having a lot of fun with uh, Boomerang, a new uh, app from the folks at, at Instagram. Uh, have you guys used this? I, I've been hearing about it yeah. every now and again. I haven't actually used it. I so know if it's good. Who, oh, chiming in from God. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> Behind me. Um, yeah, so what you do is you take these um, short little videos, maybe three seconds is the limit, and um, and then what the app does is it takes that video and then plays it forwards and then in reverse, forwards and reverse um, in a loop to create this kind of... Um, kind of trippy looping effect that can either have the illusion of it being kind of infinite and it just the motion is going on forever um, or a, a deliberate deliberate kind of back and forth. So it's a cool example of one of these apps that um, has inspired people to get creative in a new way and, and, and you know, a, a approach making videos uh, in, in a way that they hadn't thought of before. So I've been having fun with it. What's your handle there so people can follow you? Um, so there's no um, there's no network built around it. It's oh. just a tool. So it's it's um, they make it really easy to create Integrate the video and into- then share it on Instagram. Um, but you can share it probably on Twitter or, or wherever you'd like. Um, but it's it's made by the Instagram folks and uh, and it's pretty tightly integrated with Instagram. And so they intend that to be the network for sharing. So what's your handle on Instagram then? Uh, Reed Kavner K A V N E R Reed with two E's. Is there a space in between? Okay, so everyone can go and find you and check out your boomerangs. Check out my boomerangs. I did a cool one during the uh, <laughs> during the uh, uh, New York Marathon. Uh, I did a cool one of me cracking an egg into a pan, and then the egg comes back up. The yolk comes back up into the shell. Oh, nice! Um, that yeah. sounds definitely like Heritage Radio Network listener territory. Oh, I'm tailoring my. Uh, <laughs> 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 I know my audience. <laughs> So the voice of God back there, you got an app for us? <laughs> um, yes, I do. And I just have to say, I was confused because Boomerang meant something else to me. It's actually oh. an extension in Gmail where you can um, schedule emails to go out, which is pretty revolutionary. Yeah, I like that Boomerang too. Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. That's where I thought oh. we were going. And then, and then I learned something new today, which I always do on Tech Bytes. Um, so I have two, two that, that I want to mention. Um, first of all... Prime Now, which is Amazon's new thing. I haven't used it because it's not available in my zip code, but apparently you can order things to be delivered within the hour. Is this the drone delivery? I don't know. 
I mean, I, I don't think so. They're talking about using drones to deliver within the half hour. Huh. Well, th- this is available now. It's within the hour. It's only select zip codes. I imagine listeners that are in, like, Manhattan, maybe this will work for them. It does not work in Bed-Stuy. So I'm really curious to see if any listeners out there can use this if they have used it. I, I, I used it when I first uh, when I first moved to uh, to Fort Greene. So I know it's available in Fort Greene. Oh, and wow. It, it is amazing. Yeah. And it's five bucks uh, for the for the within the hour delivery for as much stuff as I think will fit in like a standard shopping bag. Wow, that's crazy. Futures here. Well, there you go. Um, so that was the first app that kind of piqued my interest. The second thing is a tip that of all people, Erica Wides, the host of Let's Get Real, told me. She's like, "Oh, you never use Siri for this. You can just kind of talk to Siri and be like, remind me to call this person in twenty minutes. Just kind of like talk instructions at her, and then like notifications will come up and remind you." Sounds it's pretty obvious, but something I never thought of doing, and now I've been doing. I've never talked to Siri. No, no. Did you get to know her? Uh, I've talked to Siri about one thing, which, which again for your listeners, it's setting timers when I'm cooking. Ah. I, I put something on the stove and I say there set a go. timer for 18 minutes and wow. then I don't have to touch any buttons. That's pretty much the extent of the that I use Siri for as well. Yeah, she's good at it. Very good. Siri's setting good timer, at kitchen timer. timer. Siri the sous chef. Could she do in, sous chef. Yeah, like interval timing maybe might, for workouts. The day the day the guest doesn't show up, it's going to be the Siri show. Yeah, me, you, and Siri. Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> I have a guy at home. I just say, hey, I need to know in about a half hour when this is going to be ready. Will you tell me? I just put it in the oven. <laughs> Malachi, do you have an app for us? Uh, yeah, uh, I do. Um an app that I've been using a lot um, is it's a it's a music app um, called Tenudo. Um, it's used to or for like music theory learning and ear training and other kinds of musical skill sets like that. Uh, I'm a musician, so it's very valuable to me, and it's like a great way to like practice and get your ear better, so you can play better. How do you spell that? <laughs> um, let me look. Spelling is so important in the app and digital world because everything gets so creative sometimes yeah. when you have to buy the URL. Yeah, it's spelled T-E-N-U-T-O. Tenuto. And, and is it free? Uh, I think it's $4 or $5. <gasps> Price $4. But it's, it's definitely, <laughs> it's definitely worth the buy. I've, I've definitely uh, gotten my money's worth and more out of it. So That's a pricey app. Yeah, <laughs> it does a lot of things. It does a lot of things. Pricey app for $5. You know, it's so amazing to me the just completely different points of view people have today about money and amounts of money. We all talked about apps that we love that are free. And as soon as someone says they spent 4 or $5 for an app, that seems like an outrageous amount of money to spend for an app. Even though a lot of people will spend like, you know, 15 20 bucks on in-app purchases... One of my favorite comparisons is how much money did you spend on coffee today? Because coffee is another thing where if you go to your bodega, it's like $1.50 for a regular coffee, like New York City style regular coffee. But then you can go to some fancy place and spend like 8 or $9 for a coffee. And if you were really, you know, in the giving holiday mood, you could spend a couple more dollars and have radio. <laughs> Which is actually why Erin came to see us. She just came 
I came. I came not just to talk coffee, but actually because we are entering the last month of our end of year fund drive. So Heritage Radio, like nonprofits everywhere, depends on the support of our our listeners, our hosts, our fans, and. Uh, we're coming now to ask you to become a supporting member. Uh, any amount is great. The amount that you might spend on a cup of coffee, whether that's a dollar fifty or eight or nine dollars, um, both are appreciated. You can become a sustaining member actually for just five bucks a month, and uh, that that adds up to about sixty dollars over the course of the year. And we're going to send you an amazing um, cookbook, which fans of Tech Bites. Um, will notice has the fingerprints of one Jennifer Lacey all over it. And we're super excited. It's the first time we've ever actually attempted to put a cookbook together. It's a party in a PDF. It's the podcast potluck dinner party <laughs> PDF cookbook. And it has basically all the recipes and tips that you need from all of the top hosts and some super famous guests to put together an amazing winter party. We're hoping to do them seasonally. It'll be the first one, volume one, winter is coming. And it's going to be uh, seasonal Americana. So it's going to be really good. I have a recipe in it. Aaron has a recipe in it. Jack's going to do a playlist, I think. Oh, nice. <laughs> Surprise. Yeah, We're going to have cleanup tips and party tips and a lot of really wonderful stuff. And it's going to be a bargain. Yeah. I think. Well, I feel like there's one other thing I want to add that I feel like is specific to the tech bike audience is that um, in a lot of organizations, a lot of the money that you end up donating goes to support future fundraising activities. And Heritage Radio Network, because we're small, because we're nimble, almost 100 percent of what you give us goes directly to support programming and the tools that we need to bring your programming on the air. That's the studio, it's the website, um, and the staffing that that takes. It was interesting. We actually looked into um, giving by text this year. We're like, oh, that's so great. You can just give by text. All the like big nonprofits do it. And you know that is thousands of dollars a year it costs to buy that service, which I suppose is worth it. But when you're a small nonprofit, it seems like a little bit hard to make those decisions. So um, which is kind of interesting to think about what tech is available at what cost to different types of organizations. So I would look at actually to add a challenge to our guests today to think about some of those hacks um, for organization like ours would be would be pretty cool. I'd be curious to see what brainstorming might come out of a session like that. That's a nice segue into having people go back and listen to the episode of Tech Bites from last week, which was put the giving into Thanksgiving. And our guest was Tony Butler, who runs St. John's Bread and Life. And one of the things that they developed was a digital food pantry for people to use um, when you don't have necessarily access to a phone or a computer or other people and to be able to get what you need. But the other thing is that in terms of developing things like that for themselves, it's created a whole new pocket of people that nonprofits need to volunteer. You know, the traditional nonprofit volunteer list is, you know, people who have a lot of friends with money, people who can come and, you know, roll up their sleeves and stuff envelopes, stuff envelopes <laughs> and make phone calls and, you know, do a can drive or whatever the case may be. But now because it is about kickstarter and giving online and apps to give and text and all of that it's wonderful but it's it's an area that a lot of people don't really understand and can also just get robbed 
because people don't understand technology, there are a lot of not nice people out there who say, yeah, it's going to cost $150,000 to build your app. I can build you a website on Squarespace. It's going to cost 20 grand. <laughs> and if anybody wants me to build them a $20,000 website on Squarespace, <laughs> send an email to techbyteshrn at gmail.com. I'll available. do it for 15000 <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Anyway, that's Aaron's really nice, articulate way of saying, if you can hear my voice, you are a listener of Heritage Radio, and you should send us money so we can make more radio. Thank you. Yes. So that was a rousing round of apps. (laughs) (laughs) I was actually WeChatting WhatsApp to my girlfriends during the break moment there. I'm like, WhatsApp about us WeChatting, not WhatsApping. No response yet. I'll keep you posted. Okay. Okay. Anyway, we are here with two gentlemen who know how to build stuff and how to make stuff and do understand the technology. And as I said earlier, Jason was here on episode three talking about his Twitter feed, Last Minute Eaten, which has been a longtime favorite thing of mine in the digital space. Why don't you explain very simply what it is to catch the folks up at home? Right. So, <clears throat> excuse me. So, Last Minute Eden is a pretty simple service. Uh, you, it's, a, it's a Twitter bot. Uh, you follow it. And uh, during waking hours, say 8 a.m. to uh, a last dinner reservation around 9.15 or 9.30 p.m., uh, every 20 minutes it tweets out hard-to-get tables, um, mostly in Manhattan, but a few select locations in Brooklyn, um, a couple in Queens, I believe, as well. Um, you know, the way the, the technology works is... Uh, is, is, is effectively as you'd expect. Um, you know, it, it's akin to having someone you know sit on open table all day long and see what tables are available and know which which uh, among those tables that are available, which ones are actually hard to get into. Uh, you know, so behind the scenes, you know, you know, I built a, a simple bot that goes and and, and scans open table uh, throughout the day every five minutes or so, uh, and then every 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 twenty minutes then goes and looks at all the tables that are open uh, and selects one. Uh, among the uh, you know you know with respect to those tables that are those restaurants that are hardest to get into, so sort of the second half of the system is, is compute stats on you know that's what's considered per se compared to to Balthazar, uh, you know compa- compared to um, uh, you know somewhere easier that might you know somewhere somewhere that might be easier to get into uh, around town, um, you know and 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 those restaurants that are harder get, harder to get into that will get tweeted more often. Um, so that's sort of the second half of the platform. So just to give a sense of what he's talking about, the last few tweets on Last Minute Eaten, we have one hour ago, table for two at Mineta Tavern, 7 o'clock, 9 o'clock, and 9.30. That's your favorite. That's one of my favorites. I love that restaurant. It's amazing. Table for two at Lartuzzi, 9.45. Another Heritage Radio Network host. I'm like, oh, we're having a meta moment here. <laughs> Earlier, though, four hours ago, table for two at Carbone Mm, at 9.45, which is amazing. I mean, who knows? You could wind up sitting next to Jay-Z and B. Another Mineta Tavern, Bergdorf Goodman, Per Se, Gramercy Tavern. Wow, they're all here. Okay, so that's what Last Minute Eaton is. And his friend, you guys are actually friends in real life. We we actually met through having both done similar work. That was going to be my question, which came first. I don't know which came first, actually. I, I think the New York Times article is what brought us together. 
Right. Oh, oh, oh I, I thought you were actually asking which, which service came first. Oh, I have so no idea. Reed, yeah. explain what your service is. He created something called ResHound. Yeah, ResHound spelled with a Z, R-E-Z, Hound. Um, and so ResHound is, is um, similar to, to Last Minute Eaton in that it, it helps you uh, get reservations at, at, at tough-to-book uh, restaurants. Um, but it, it takes a more specific approach. So it works with any restaurant on Open, a ta- open, open Table. Um, you uh, tell it where you would like to go. Uh, when you would like to go and your party size. So if you want to go to Carbone um, next Friday uh, at 8 p.m. with a party of four, you put put in those details along with your email address and cell phone number if you'd like. Um, and when that table becomes available, if it becomes available, um, it'll send you a text and an email with a link to go book it before someone else has the chance to. And why did you build it? Um, f- for, for two reasons. One... Um, I was living in San Francisco at the time, and um, there were obviously, just like New York or, or Chicago, any major city, lots of great restaurants that are just too hard to get into, uh, and I wanted to go to them. So it was something that I wanted to have myself. Um, th- the other reason was I was looking for a project. Um, I wanted uh, to work on something kind of meaty, um, and so the two uh, two desires kind of coincided, and, and it uh, it made sense for this to be the project. So the two of you created similar open table hacks on East Coast, West Coast, kind of simultaneously in the same time frame? I would imagine, Reed, you probably beat me to it by at least a few months. Yeah. I, Rez- I hadn't seen ResHound before. Uh... ResHound launched um, February 2013, so yeah, almost three years ago. probably late spring or maybe in the summer of okay. 2013, I guess. And the two of you met when you were both profiled by the New York Times. Exactly. Yes, but Jason had his picture yes. in the article. A big oh. color photo. <laughs> wow. He's a handsome man. <laughs> <laughs> we'll make sure to put up a photo of both of you for the episode. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so what, you wanted to just do a project. So you just did this for yourself, as did Jason. And so we're going to talk a couple different things with them. First of all... I'm really curious as to what the skill set is that you need to do this. I myself have been thinking that I need to learn how to code and I need to learn how to do these things to be more astute, investigative journalist in this field, but also to be able to just make cool shit. So what is the actual skill set that you need to build these bots and feeds and searches? Well, I I can... um... I, I can tell you a bit about how I went about doing it. I, I don't know how to talk about it in exactly in, in generic terms, but I, I guess I should start by saying um, it's not a, a hard-to-acquire skill set. Um, uh, Jason has a PhD in data science. That sounds hard to acquire. Um, I don't have that. I, I have no formal training in, <laughs> I, I, in computer science or computer engineering. I can assure you that a PhD in, in machine learning is not required to do anything right. that we're talking about here. <laughs> Um, so I, I learned from from a book and from tinkering um, and from kind of figuring out things as I go. So I just I, I wanted to mention that it's it's not a hard to acquire skill set. Um, yeah. So I I, I um, taught myself to code. Which and, coding language? Uh, coding in Python. Um, which you know I, I I enjoyed. I happened to be working at a company at the time that was uh, building software written in Python. So I was surrounded by experts who I could bug during the workday when I had questions. Uh, which is the reason I, I chose that language, but I, there are other languages that have have equal merit. Um, so you know, I, I think that someone considering learning to code shouldn't spend too much time trying to decide what language. Maybe Jason disagrees. Jason, what's your favorite coding language? Um, I mean, 
you know, last minute Eden is also written in Python. Uh, I mean, I like Python because you know, if, if you're doing anything with a, a, a you know a medium to a large amount of data, it's faster than than Ruby. But uh, which is probably more of a consideration for last minute Eden than Reshound because I actually scanned every single table all day long to, you know, it's a little bit unnecessary, but it's how it works. Um, you know, so that is more of a consideration. But you know, to Reed's point, I think. You know, both of these systems, I mean, reads more than, you know, Reshound more than Last Minute Eden, they're, they're really sort of a standard web applications. Um, you know, the, the, you know, there's sort of three pieces. There's, there's the front end, that's what you see. So that's a lot of, you know, HTML and CSS to make it look nice. Uh, actually, I was lazy with Last Minute Eden, have, have pretty much no front end because I guess, you know, drive the thing through Twitter. Uh, you know, the second piece is sort of the application tier, and that's what does the processing. So, you know, go to, uh, you know, open table and check to see if there's a table. Um, when you click a button on, on, on reshound.com, you know, go and put a record in the database that stores your phone number, that kind of stuff. Uh, and then the third piece is just, you know, the, the actual data storage layer in, 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 in the database. Uh, and you know, like all these platforms, you know, every single you know app that we talked about today, from WhatsApp, you know, adapt, maybe maybe Tenuto might be a little bit more advanced than what we're talking about here. They're all sort of standard web applications, and you know, once you sort of figure out those three pieces, uh, you can build a, a large, you know, you know, you know, a fairly flexible uh, degree of, of 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 applications. I mean, you know, iPhone and Android applications and Android development is, is a little bit different, but in terms of I guess websites or mobile sites, you can get a, a very long ways. Okay, so when we come back from the break, we're going to talk more about these three pieces and doing stuff like that. We're also going to find out why they created fun free services instead of charging people. Right after we hear from our sponsor, New York Trees, which is a New York State Farmers Association around Christmas trees, because it's officially the season, and they're doing a lighting up at Lincoln Center tonight. So listen to the PSA and check them out. Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State-grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arriving to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer. And trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space and agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC on a pilot project to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit christmastreesny.org. Hi, this is Harry Rosenblum, host of Feast Your Ears here on Heritage Radio Network. This is my first season as a host, but at the Brooklyn Kitchen, we've been supporting Heritage Radio for many years, and I really believe in what Heritage does. It is a fantastic network that really highlights everything that is going on in food in America, from restaurant openings to farms uh, to my show, where I feature interesting people with interesting stories related to food. But Heritage is a not-for-profit. We don't make any money. Uh, Most of the hosts do this because we love to do it, and we really do need your help as listeners. We'd love to have you listen, whether you can give any money or not. 
the website will still be up. You can still stream your favorite shows. But if you do like the programs here on Heritage Radio, we really would encourage you to go to the website, heritageradionetwork.org, click on the beating heart in the upper right-hand corner, and give whatever you can. If you drink coffee every afternoon while you listen to shows on Heritage, then maybe you can give us the cost of a cup of coffee once in a while. If you want to become a larger member, there's all kinds of great things you get if you become a member of the station and a larger supporter so please join me join the brooklyn kitchen join our other great sponsors and become a member well if you've just tuned in and you're wondering what the hell you clicked on this is tech bites on the heritage radio network.org the weekly show where we talk about the intersection of food and technology and today that technology is python and we're talking with Reed Kravner from Reshound and Jason Davis of Last Minute Eaton. And, you know, very famously, Steve Case has said there are three eras to the Internet. The first one, which is basically when he built it with AOL. The second one is building on top of what was built. And then the third one, which is coming in the near future, I think it starts next year, actually, uh, which is the disruptive era. So, But before we move full into the disruptive era... I want to talk a little bit more on the, about the building on top of era. And a couple of things are really fascinating to me about Reshound and Last Minute Eaton. One of them is that you're, you're dealing with something open table, which is a free and existing service. So how do you identify that a service like that is open, accessible, possible to create the two services that you created to go with it. What's the what's the first step? Reed, you said you wanted to have a little project. So walk mm-hmm. us through. Pretend we don't know anything about Python or coding. Like walk us through almost like the chronological process of how you identify something and then start to put it together. Sure. Well, actually, the story of, of ResHound actually starts with um, something much smaller, um, w- which was when I was searching for for a project. My my the, the first thing that I that I made before ResHound came about. Um, was something similar that um, I was living in San Francisco and um, a restaurant called Stapered Provisions had just been named Bon Appetit's Best New Restaurant and had suddenly become impossible to get into. Um, so I, I decided that my mission was to to get a reservation at, at Stapered Provisions and, and use my, my newfound coding skills to do so. Um, and and they were not on open table at the time. Um, and so what I built was was just a, a small little bot that um, would look for Friday and Saturday night reservations at Statebird Provisions um, and send me an email when that happened. Um, so can one of you tell us what a bot is? Because it's not robot. Sure. Well, it, it, I mean, it, it is robot, but it, it doesn't have you know blinking lights for eyes. It, you, you, you can't see it. A, 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 a bot is a computer program that... Um, kind of acts on behalf of a user um, autonomously, right? So instead of me sitting at my browser, clicking refresh, refresh, refresh until um, until a reservation becomes available, the bot essentially does that for me. The bot is is you know c- clicking refresh itself, um, and then the bot has instructions to email me with a link um, if uh, if it finds a reservation. So you know, really, if you think about a a robot, the kind with you know blinking eyes and claws for hands, what it's doing is is trying to act like a human and is is doing things that humans don't want to do or we're not strong enough to do, we're not fast enough to do. Um, so a, a, a bot in the software sense is, is the same kind of thing. It, it's, it's doing something that I don't want to be spending all my time clicking refresh. I can't click refresh fast enough. Um, and so it, it does a better job than, than I can. How many times can the bot click refresh in a minute? Or how many refreshes a second? 
Does anyone know? Can it do? Uh, Jason's probably better to, to answer how fast it can do. It, yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, the limitation here, you know, isn't you know is one of having sort of two parties to communicate with the, with each other. So I ask OpenTable, uh, you know, are there any you know openings available for two at per se tonight? You know, and they have to say yes or no. And if they say yes, they'll tell us, tell me what time, and then I'll do the same for Meta Tavern. They'll do the same for Danielle. I'll do the same for you know, hundreds of other restaurants. You know, so from from my perspective, it's 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 really just a more of a. I mean, you're sort of you know you're, you're automating a task, and if the other party is willing to communicate with you, you know, a thousand times a, a minute or a hundred times a second, wherever that is, then uh, then you can make it happen. It's just a matter of so how, it up. how do you know that the other system will communicate with you? State Bird Provision was a small, single restaurant, their, their reservation system on their website? Uh, they were using, um, uh, Urban Spoon had a reservation system at the time, um, but there was no uh, kind of network like, like Open Table had. So you, I, I had to build it specifically for the State Bird page on, uh, on Urban Spoon. Um, and, and so I'm sorry, your question was, how do you know it will answer your question? Um, because when you load a website, um, you're you're asking it a question. You're saying, um, "Hey, do you have any reservations available?" Also, what does this page look like? Um, what are the photos on this page? What's the tech? You're asking it lots of questions, um, and so any questions that you can ask as a as a user at your browser, um, a, a, a bot can ask also. Right, and and I should also add, uh, you know, when, when when you go and surf the web, uh, you, you pull up the website and you read the content, uh, you know, through the HTML that's delivered uh, to your browser. Uh, you know, some websites also have something called uh, an API, uh, which is effectively a programmatic way of, of just requesting the data. Uh, now, it turns out that, that OpenTable actually doesn't have an API, or they don't have one that's publicly accessible or easily accessible. Uh, but at the same time, um, if you think about how Google works, you know, Google crawls and indexes and, and, and looks at pages from across the web. Uh, and Google actually doesn't interface with APIs at all. It just uh, you know, you know, looks at those web pages in the same way that you would, uh, indexes the content, stores them so you can search it. Um, you know, so you know when, when when sort of computers are accessing the web, there's sort of two ways they can do it. One is via an API if it's available, and the second is is if it's not available, or, or even if it is, and there are good reasons not to use it, you can crawl the site directly. Uh, and with each of those, there's sort of protocols on how quickly you can hit it. Um, I mean, so so the first is there's this you know w- you know in terms of crawling the web, there's a file on every single website. Uh, if you go to the the root of the website, you know, say ESPN.com, and you add a slash robots.txt, um, there you'll see the rules on 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 how the website you know would like you or would not like you to crawl and, and programmatically retrieve information. So it can tell you what sections of the site are available, and furthermore, it can also specify things like how often you know do you want do they want you to be you know re indexing or recrawling or refetching content. Um, and then if you interface via an API, there they you know have a much deeper. Uh, or, or, or more straightforward way of, 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 of sort of delivering that in, in that if you request, you know, too often, you'll just say, you just give a response and say, hey, you're, you're, you're requesting this too often. And, and for those taking notes at home, the, the former method that Jason was talking about where you're going and, and retrieving a, a web page programmatically as a, as a browser would do it, um, it's called scraping. So if, you, if, you, if that's something you want to learn how to do, scraping is the word to Google. <laughs> And it means something different than typically on a cooking show. It's not something you do with a spatula. That's right, for sure. <laughs> so OpenTable is an existing platform. 
that I'm assuming you both chose because it's basically the largest cache of reservations out there right now. It's kind of monolithic compared to everything else. By far. Yeah, it was the obvious choice. Has it changed that much over time? For no, your purposes? I, Have you had to go in and update or tweak? No, I mean, uh, if anything, uh, open table adoption has just increased over the last few years. Uh, my wife and I used to have uh, our favorite sushi spot in the East Village called Jewel Baco. For years, they were off of open table. Uh, you know, and then we moved into Brooklyn and went back, uh, you, know, you know, recently. And they said, oh, we're on open table now. And our reservation shot up like 30 percent. Um, so it's, I think it's just, you know, it's, it's one of these things that, you know, you, know, the, you know, they have very strong network effects in that, you know, the more restaurants they bring in, the more attractive it is to customers. Uh, and the more customers they bring in, the more, the more sort of necessary it is for restaurants to join. Um, you know, so, you know, you know I, I think it's going to, you know, there, there have been plenty of folks who have come in and, and sort of, and I think Yelp, you know, has, has, has made a few acquisitions that could potentially be competitive, but no one has really come in and posed any serious threat to, to open table recently. And, you know, f- from my perspective, they're just getting bigger, especially in, in larger cities. Right. And, and especially in, in, in the, the kind of fine dining situations where it is hard to grab a table. A lot of those restaurants tend to be um, on open table rather than on Yelp's seat me. Um, you know, I, I think that you'll you probably will have chefs sitting in and restaurateurs sitting in this very seat saying how much they they hate open table. And I think they'll talk about how much they hate open table all day long and, and, and never actually leave it because it is it is that beneficial for the business. Actually, there was a restaurateur sitting in your actual seat a few weeks ago who said his restaurant was considering going off of open table because of the cost per reservation it, it i mean it is much pricier than i you know i think that um uh seat me the the service that that jason alluded to that was purchased by yelp i think they're just a standard monthly fee whereas open table is a standard monthly fee um plus a per cover fee um so it is a whole lot more expensive right but at the same time i mean if you consider the cost of having a, an empty table that you know that, you know that otherwise would have gone on filled an open table, then you know it's not expensive. That being said, you know if if you're running a restaurant and you're filled six and a half nights a week, then you can afford to go off of open table. That's certainly the exception, not the norm. Well, the thir- the whole third party platform is a completely different show, right? Um, in term from the restaurant point of view and and the costs and the percentages and things like that going up. The the question that I want to ask the two of you though. With all of the talk around reservations and people willing to pay for reservations and the value of them, you created these services for yourselves. Did you ever think about monetizing them? Because they're both up and free and available to the public. I mean, ResHound feels more like a service because it's interactive. You put in the dates you want, your email, it sends you something. Last Minute Eaten is really kind of like a perpetual PSA. It's like a public service announcement. But have either of you ever thought about trying to monetize them? Uh, I've certainly uh, thought about it. I've thought about it uh, a a lot. And every time I think about it, uh, I come to the conclusion that it's probably better better left uh, as a hobby. Um, I, you know, I've gotten emails from people saying, you know, this is great. I, I would pay for it, which is, you know, the feedback that every entrepreneur is, is, is looking to hear and, you know, during the infancy of their project. Um, but, you know, but I think that there are some, um, some unpredictable parts of it where, you know, if I were to actually make it into a business, I would still be, I would be dependent upon, um, uh, open tables, um, uh, continuing grace, uh, in, in, uh, allowing me to do what I do. Um, and, uh, so that would be a pretty big, uh, kind of single point of failure, right? Uh, that, that <laughs> what I would be relying on, um, you know, as, as my source for data could, could go away at, at, at any moment. 
Um, and, and as I've looked at um, ways to monetize, um, you know, I haven't found anything too compelling uh, that would make it uh, into a real viable business. I think it could be still a, maybe a project that would make a little bit of money and maybe pay for some of the server costs and things like that. Um, but I think even the businesses that you see um, that are based around the idea of charging for reservations are still they're still testing the waters. Um, so it's uh, it's uh, it's far from being a, a proven business model. How about you? Uh, yeah, I mean, for me, I mean, I, I primarily built last minute eating just to solve a, uh, a need of my own. One in one, one in which you know my my you know professional life is uh, managed to the second by my calendar. Uh, and the last thing I want to have to do is is book my reservations out four or six weeks in advance. Um, so that was sort of the the motivations behind last minute eating. Um, but you know, at the same time, I think if you were to monetize a service like this, it would just have to be bigger. Uh, and, and encompass maybe more than just 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 restaurants. I mean, for me, the way I sort of see uh, sort of consumer uh, demand and expectations moving is 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 is, is sort of you know in the on-demand economy with how people expect an Uber to get there in ten seconds, uh, or to order Monkshire or Maple or, or or their food and to have that delivered in eight and a half minutes, you know, flat. Um, you know, I think the sort of last-minute experience of space is, is interesting. You know, but it would have to include dining and tickets and. Uh, other sorts of of, of nightlife, uh, and it's just never got into that. And and, and you know, everything that that Jason just mentioned as these last minute services are all guarantees. When when, when you enter a Reshound request for a reservation, it's far from a guarantee. It, it'll let you know if if an opening becomes available. Um, but um, I, I, you know, I get probably once or twice a month um, an angry email from someone who didn't understand the way that it works and, and thought <laughs> and and thought that they were going to get a reservation. Um, and uh, you know, so when you're ordering uh, Maple or ordering an Uber or, or going to one of these services, um, you know, like Resi or Reserve. That is charging for reservations. Um, you you know that you are getting it. It's it's a sure thing. Well, and also it lets you off the hook a little bit in that in the case of the angry emails because it is a free service and you're not <laughs> charging it makes, anyone. It makes customer service a lot easier. Yeah. Well, I think one of the things that people monetize—not people, but companies—in the digital space monetize—is the user information and the statistics and the data and the people in the crowd. You know, I get a lot of press releases and pitches from different digital startup companies in the in the food space and when you drill down to what it is that they're actually doing a lot of it just comes down to amassing large numbers of people yeah, i mean i i i will say that i think you know in in the years to come i think there's a big opportunity in the general space of restaurant analytics uh, i mean you look at, at danny meyer uh, he's he's eliminating tipping you know, and for one thing, tipping, you know, for better or for worse, it is sort of an indicator of, of customer happiness. And you know, Danny Meyer doesn't like tipping because of the imbalances between the waitstaff and the, and, 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 and the chefs and all that. But, you know, at the end of the day, one of the costs of, of eliminating tipping, and if you sort of see this as a trend, is, is one less data point that, uh, that restaurants have to go off of, of you know, you know that, that, that provides sort of a feedback loop on whether people are happy or not. Um, so I think to that end, I mean, certainly making the reservation and who's making what the demographics might be could be interesting. But I think, you know, getting more data downstream uh, and really helping uh, restaurants critically evaluate, uh, you know, whether or not they're doing a good, good job. And, and if they're not, you know, where they're falling short, uh, I think that is, is definitely sort of a big, you know, a big challenge for many uh, restaurants uh, today. It certainly is. And I don't know that anybody's really solved it yet. It's interesting that you say that a few episodes back, we had two founders and CEOs of 
two very different types of customer feedback services. One is sort of more a, a digital, um, you know, an app where people download it and then they send in their comments, you know, anonymously or not anonymously, but directly to the restaurant. And the service then can aggregate things and the restaurants pay to be on the app and be in the service. The other one was a uh, kind of secret shopper idea where people come into the restaurant and they eat and then they give feedback to mm -hmm. the restaurant about the different points. And definitely customer feedback is a trend in the digital food tech space, but I haven't seen anybody really be able to convince restaurants that it's going to work. And the other question mark for me, which no one has successfully answered yet, is companies are reliant on the public to create the product they are selling to the restaurants. And so you have to guarantee a certain level of complicity and participation from the public yep. to generate the data that you then sell back to the restaurants. And that I can't figure out how people do. Yep. No, it's, it's definitely a challenge. I mean, Yelp. You know, Yelp. You know, Yelp does it. You know, but at the same time, you know, Yelp's you know feedback mechanism is fairly unstructured. It's one through five stars, and then you write whatever you want. So, spending time both in the you know the tech and the data space, and then having the personal affinity for the restaurants. Do you ever think about creating a business like this, or creating something that you would monetize? We could corner the market on information and analytics for restaurants. I mean, I do, but I, I currently have a, a startup you know, that's data-focused and has little to do with restaurants, so I'm, I'm at least a few years out before uh, coming back and doing anything crazy in this space, but uh, it's definitely a passion of mine, obviously. Yeah, I'm also far from, from actually acting upon something, but it is something I, I think about occasionally. When I, when I was contemplating um, turning Red Sound into a business and, and uh, looking at different ways that that could work, I, I spent some time talking with restaurant operators. And, and one thing I came to realize is that um, you know, coming from Silicon Valley, I expect everyone to be data-driven in their decision-making. Um, and, and by and large, that's not what I was finding with, with most restaurant operators. Um, you know, I think that um, s sophisticated companies like, uh, like, like Danny Meyer's group um, may be the exceptions to that rule um, because there is a, a trove of, of data even aside from customer feedback, just you know, you have um, you know, you you have orders being placed and and all sorts of different variables, right? So even knowing um, does uh, does uh, is, is Brian's uh, are, are tables who have Brian as a waiter more or less likely to order dessert than than tables who have uh, Allison as a waiter? Um, that that data is available. It just needs to be needs to be organized and, and accessed. So I think there are interesting opportunities, but I don't know if uh, if I'm the one to tackle them, especially right now. <laughs> interesting opportunities, indeed. And something that you said earlier, Reed, at the beginning of that statement was about how people make decisions in restaurants and are they data driven or are they driven by. Emotion, uh, yeah, or passion, and, and art, artistry. Passion. Uh, you know, I yeah. think that a lot of a lot of people who open restaurants um, do it as an as uh, as an outlet for self expression that they're that they're hoping will turn out to be a good business. Um, and and I think that's great, and I think that any any business that's dependent upon creativity should should be run that way. Um, but I, I, you reach a certain point 
um, in, in trying to grow a business where, you know, it's obviously important to to look at all of the data points uh, available and, and start to combine your intuition and, and your um, your creative point of view uh, with the data that you have available to you. Right. And, and also, I guess, to be realistic, I think to build a successful you know, sort of top tier restaurant in New York City, you both you, you need to be both you know very creative and artistic and imaginative. Uh, you know, with your menu, with you know, good execution on food preparation and all that, you know, but you also sort of need to treat it like a real business and making sure you can leverage whatever data is possible. I mean, some of my favorite restaurants, um, you know, so I, I should say some of the best restaurants uh, with, I think, some of the you know, the most interesting menus have just shut down over the last few years. I mean, Corton and WD50 as two examples, you know, rents rising in various neighborhoods, uh, not being able to make you know, ends meet financially. Um, you know, and, and if data is, is that sort of linchpin to, you know, increase your revenues by 10 or 15% and keep you in business, then seems like a good thing to invest in. seems like a good thing to invest in if you could figure out how and where to invest in that, because that's also a key to it. I think that just be, I think the food and restaurant world is really just beginning to see how important all these things are, but there aren't necessarily really viable solutions out there in terms of tools that you can access or buy or consultants or programs. And the, that there is thing. that the a company called Copilot, which I think, were they, Jason, do you know, were they purchased by OpenTable? Yeah, they were. Yeah. Um, and, and they had an interesting model. I think they were trying to provide insights. And I think, you know, Eli was trying to answer this question of, you know, the restaurateur is, 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 you know, it's a Tuesday night and his restaurant is half empty and he wants to know, is it just me or is it everyone else? You know, so they'd actually right. integrate with a point of sale system and, and you know, compute some analytics on on ta- table occupancy and uh, week over week revenue changes and all that. And then you could sort of compare yourself to cohorts of other people in your neighborhood or other Italian restaurants in San Francisco. Um, you know, I think he had, he had a degree of success, but, you know, integration with, you know, all these different you know, you know, pieces of archaic technology that are driving restaurants today, I think, was a major source of pain for him. Yeah, maybe maybe the companies who are best positioned to tackle this are the companies who are in the point of sale point of sale business um, because they are already gathering much of the data that you need to uh, to do this kind of uh, analysis. But you know, there many of them, like Jason said, are, are dinosaurs and are pretty happy being in the cash register business. I've often said that the tech level of restaurants is pencil on cocktail napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we are just out of time right now. And like I always do at the end of every show, I like to ask my guests for a little piece of advice so that listeners can do something new and and learn something in their lives. So given this is about creating something and programming, I'll go back to each of you again really quickly. What's the best way for someone who knows absolutely nothing about technology to go about learning how to code? And there, there are a ton of uh, online courses you can take for free. I go to Coursera, um, you know, sign up for a class on on, on web programming. Uh, you know, commit to spending twenty, thirty hours, you know, hacking out some Python or PHP or Ruby or whatever it is. Uh, and you know, and once you get to a level of proficiency, there's sort of a, t- a ton of platforms today which make it very easy to deploy your application and, and put it out there live for other people to use. What's the easiest one to learn? 
Oh, I don't know if... Uh, or I'm, the best one. I, so I, I, I learned Python. Um, I, I did so using uh, a free book that's available online. It's called Learn Python the Hard Way. It's written by a, a great uh, and funny uh, Python engineer named Zed Shaw. Um, there's also a version of the book available for Ruby, so you can you can take your pick. Um, so yeah, I started with, with that book, got a baseline of knowledge. And then once I felt like I kind of had a, a grasp around the basics, um, that's when I, I went looking for a project to build. Um, and really, that was the key for me. Where was that I knew I had an end goal in mind and I could uh, Google my way to uh, crossing the bridges that I, I didn't know how to cross. Okay, so free online courses, come up with a project and build it. And if you build it, apparently the tables will come. Exactly. <laughs> I want to thank Reed Kavner from Rezhound. That's R-E-Z-H-O-U-N-D dot com. Jason Davis of Last Minute Eaton. You'll find him on Twitter at Last Minute Eaton. E-A-T-I-N apostrophe. No apostrophe. No apostrophe. Oh, Twitter doesn't support apostrophes. And thank also our sponsor, New York Trees, fresh Christmas trees from New York State Farmers. We love that. We love the smell of Christmas. And our nice special drop-in guest, Aaron Fairbanks, making the plea to all of our Heritage Radio listeners. If you love this show, participate. Be one of our supporting members and help us make more radio. I'm Jennifer Leutzi, and this is Tech Bytes. Come back and see us next Monday. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.